0: Welcome to Forgotten TV, the podcast that brings you TV memories of the 70s and 80s with a focus on short-lived TV shows, TV pilots, and made-for-TV movies. I'm Chris Cooling. In fifth grade at lunchtime on Wednesdays, kids would be talking about this show that was on the prior night. This show had a photographer running all over the world uncovering conspiracies, an old West Marshal in a futuristic alien city, and of all things, Dracula. What kind of schizophrenic show was this? That is the subject of this episode of Forgotten TV. For the last 15 years, I was unable to find any recordings of this show, even checking with people like Ray Glasser, the video-holic on YouTube, some 10 years ago to no success. Then a couple of months ago, someone finally posted some VCR recordings of this show on YouTube. So today, we are going to discuss the notorious early 1979 NBC mid-season mega failures, Cliffhangers, as well as Supertrain. It's almost impossible to talk about Cliffhangers without some context, which definitely includes a discussion of Supertrain. It was summer of 1978, and NBC had just one top ten show on its roster. Little House on the Prairie, and worse, only four shows altogether performing in the top 30, which included the NBC Monday Night Movie, Project UFO, and Sunday's The Big Event. Deciding it needed new blood, NBC hires Fred Silverman to head the network. Fred Silverman had been responsible for CBS's rural purge of 1971, as well as reintroducing game shows to daytime TV, greenlighting at least a dozen huge hits for ABC, as well as ending the network practice of wiping for daytime as well as late-night shows at both CBS and ABC during the 70s. Wiping is the practice of erasing TV programs and reusing the videotape, which is why we don't have almost any recordings of The Tonight Show before 1972. But before Silverman found success at ABC, launching shows like Hill Street Blues, Shogun, Different Strokes, The Facts of Life, and Gimme a Break, there was a rough patch at the beginning. Half of NBC's 1978 primetime shows were canceled by midseason, due to no fault by Silverman since the fall season was set and well in production when he came on board. Nevertheless, NBC ended the 1978-79 TV season still with only four shows in the top 30, Little House on the Prairie and the NBC Monday Night Movie, which benefited greatly from the Little House lead-in, Chips, and Different Strokes, and his first attempt at fixing the network, the mid-season schedule, in early 1979, was a disaster. Cliffhangers was one of nine mid-season replacement shows greenlit by Silverman. It began airing in February of 1979 at 7 p.m. Central, up against Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley, the number one and number two shows on television for the prior season, as well as the CBS Tuesday Night Movie. Cliffhangers was heavily promoted at the time. Let's hear one of those promos, narrated by the great Don Pardo.
1: Cliffhangers. Three continuing action-packed stories in one show. First, the secret empire. Marshal Jim Donner rides out of the past right into the future and discovers a secret city beneath the earth, filled with wonders and packed with thrills, far beyond the dreams of mortal men. A city ruled by an evil emperor whose one goal is to control all mankind. Next, a beautiful newspaper reporter travels the globe to uncover a plot which will end the world. But when this ring of master spies finds she's hot on their trail, all they want to do is stop Susan Williams. Then, it's Dracula 79. The prince of darkness has returned to cast his spell upon the unwary. But the evil count will never rest in peace, for Kurt and Mary have sworn to end his immortal reign. Can goodness triumph? Although Dracula ruled the day, watch Tuesday on NBC. They don't call them cliffhangers for nothing.
0: Yes, Cliffhangers was an attempt at reviving the old movie serial format. Movie serials used to play before a feature presentation, very popular in the 1930s and 1940s at movie theaters. These serials were divided into chapters, screened at a movie theater for one week, and typically ended with a cliffhanger in which characters found themselves in perilous situations with little apparent chance of escape. It seems that NBC may have been aiming to both a young audience that did not really get the 1950s nostalgia offered by Happy Days, as well as an older audience that remembered the movie serials of yesteryear. The segments were usually each 20 minutes long in the tradition of the old 2 reel length of a movie serial of the 1930s and 40s. Produced by Universal Television, supposedly this had a production cost of $1 million per episode, making it the most expensive TV show to date. That expense is hard to see on the screen watching it now, but I'll have more thoughts on that later. To emphasize the serial nature of the show, the stories began in progress. I suppose we should go ahead and talk about the actual segments of Cliffhangers. First, let's hear the sequence that started each episode of Cliffhangers, which had great old-style narration by Brad Crandall from WNBC, who also narrated opening recaps of individual segments.
2: It's time for Cliffhangers! Three of your favorite cereals! Three brand-new chapters!
1: Cliffhangers, bringing you the excitement of the
2: case! The lure of the exalted. The shock of the
1: unexpected. The breathlessness of suspense. The amazing escapes. The Three new chapters filled with menace. Surprises. Romance. Death behind Of the Secret Empire and Chapter 6 of the Curse of Dracula. All three tonight on Cliffhangers.
0: In the original order, the first segment, contrary to the promos, was Stop Susan Williams. Created by Kenneth Johnson, who was the creator of all the cliffhanger segments, Susan Anton and Ray Walston stars in Stop Susan Williams. Susan Williams was a news photographer looking into the death of her brother, also a reporter for the same newspaper, who had been killed in a hit-and-run. Although the police ruled his death accidental, Susan was certain it was murder. He had been investigating what he called the biggest story anyone ever uncovered, an international conspiracy to orchestrate an event which would shock the world. Here's a typical opening narration.
2: Track down the truth, even if you have to go around the world to do it.
0: Really, this story is an excuse to have Susan Anton in danger and killed nearly every week with different stock footage edited in to show that she's in a new part of the world. A lot was riding on the appeal of Susan Anton herself, cast by Fred Silverman, and the network had her do a number of public appearances to publicize the show. Stop Susan Williams was based loosely on the story of The Perils of Pauline, a movie serial from 1914, which had numerous sequels and remakes over the decades, including a 1933 serial and a 1947 feature film. The Secret Empire, starring Jeffrey Scott, Carlene Watkins, Stephanie Kramer, and Mark Leonard. Set in 1880, while chasing a band of gold thieves, the Phantom Riders, Marshal Jim Donner stumbles on a secret underground city populated by aliens known as Chimera. The city is on the brink of civil war as Emperor Thorval, played by Mark Leonard, is experiencing a rebellion of citizens beginning to resist his compliatron. Let's hear one of those great opening narrations. This is a direct homage to 1930s, 1940s westerns and fantasy serials, and it's essentially a remake of the 1935 serial The Phantom Empire with Gene Autry. Complete with laser sound effects directly copied from Battlestar Galactica, the gimmick of this segment was its use of black and white or really sepia tone on the above ground scenes set in 1880 Old West and color in the underground city. I suspect... The Secret Empire was the most expensive of the productions. Um, the video quality on the segments that are available on YouTube make it hard to see the actual expense on the screen. Since they were not able to make extensive use of stock footage and existing sets, it makes sense that this was the most expensive segment. The Curse of Dracula, starring Michael Norie, Stephen Johnson, and Carol Baxter. In modern-day 1979 San Francisco, 512-year-old Dracula is undead and well, and teaching European history at Knight College. He had brought 20 coffins filled with Transylvanian soil with him to the United States and had hidden them throughout the area. He is pursued by Kurt von Helsing, a descendant of the original von Helsing, and his partner, Mary Gibbons, whose mother had been killed by Dracula years before. As we enter the story, the pair are destroying the 13th coffin as they face Dracula, ready to stop them. Unlike the other segments, this segment typically starts with Dracula himself giving us a voiceover narration. Arguably, this was the best and most popular of the segments. In fact, by the third episode, Dracula was moved from the third segment to the first so that the episode could lead with its strongest story, which involved gothic romantic horror and a somewhat sympathetic portrayal of Dracula. Although it included a couple of humorous scenes throughout the episodes, uh, one of which where Dracula got pulled over and asked for his driver's license and he had a funny exchange with the police officer, The lack of the announcer at the beginning of the segments makes the Dracula segment seem less campy and appear more serious in tone than the other two stories. And Dracula was the only segment that actually completed its storyline during the short run of the show. It's extremely hard to fathom that this show cost as much to produce in 1978 as... Star Trek The Next Generation cost a decade later. Due to extensive chapter recaps and a long tease for the following week, at most each segment had 12 minutes of new footage. Stop Susan Williams seemed to make use of a lot of stock footage. Dracula could be easily shot on location. The costs must have been mostly associated with having to have three separate production crews for each episode. The cliffhangers themselves were often tired and contrived. For example, a hero is shown experiencing a car crash, then in the next chapter, he was shown jumping out of the door at the last minute. Or the hero is attacked by a menacing creature at the end of a chapter, and then at the beginning of the next, oh, that's my pet, he's really quite harmless. It was a storytelling format that was several decades out of its time. Cliffhangers was not the hit Fred Silverman was hoping for. It aired for a total of 10 episodes before being pulled from the schedule, with the last episode airing May 1st of 1979. As a result, Dracula was the only segment that completed its storyline. Stomp Susan Williams and The Secret Empire remained unresolved. Even though an 11th episode was produced, it was never aired by NBC. The segments Stop Susan Williams and The Curse of Dracula were repackaged and re-edited as TV movies and enjoyed later airings. Stop Susan Williams was edited into a 91-minute movie, The Girl Who Saved the World. The Curse of Dracula was re-edited into a syndicated TV movie, The World of Dracula, sometimes titled The Loves of Dracula, and aired in the late 90s on the Sci-Fi channel, as well as on TV horror host Svinguli's show. But the Secret Empire was never seen again. No official release has ever been made or is even likely due to how obscure and short-lived this show was. Any DVDs you find for sale on eBay or those gray market DVD sites are bootleg copies of home recordings and not official releases. Most, but not all, of the episodes can be found on YouTube. A couple, though, have no audio, and the video quality is not very good. They appear to be EP recordings and are possibly second-generation copies. This is NBC.
1: Two-hour premiere of Super Train. Loaded with mystery. I think somebody's trying to kill me. Filled with fun. What how long do you think you'll be able to stay down? And packed with action. Super Train. Catch it. Tonight, followed by Quincy on the new NBC.
0: Cliffhangers was just one of nine new mid-season shows NBC slotted for early 1979. By far, the most notorious failure of these shows was the ambitious and expensive SuperTrain. A network-owned show, SuperTrain was produced and financed by NBC and possibly cost up to $10 million to construct the models and sets by the time all was said and done, sets which included a full-size mock-up of the engine and first car that passengers could board during opening scenes. One of the train models infamously crashed during production and had to be rebuilt, further inflating costs. Supertrain was heavily promoted in print, TV promos, and on the Today Show. I suppose we should cover what the show was about. SuperTrain, which has the most 70s logo that ever existed, is a nuclear-powered, double-decker, double-wide bullet train equipped with cruise ship amenities, like a theater lounge, gift shop, disco, and swimming pool. Cruising at 190 miles per hour, the train makes traveling from New York City to LA a 36-hour trip. Suspiciously similar to another show, the plots concern the passengers' social lives, usually with multiple intertwining storylines, and most of the cast of a given episode were guest stars. Your super-trained crew included Edward Andrews, Harrison Page, Robert Alda, Patrick Collins... If all this sounds very familiar, it should. This was an obvious attempt by NBC to have its own love boat, which was a top 20 show for ABC. The two-hour premiere movie had decent ratings, but did not translate to good ratings for the series, which dropped like a rock the following week. The premiere was up against the Photo Finish episode of The Amazing Spider-Man on CBS, and a two-hour Charlie's Angels. Regular Wednesday night airings, it was up against Spider-Man, and eight is enough. The premiere movie had guest stars Steve Lawrence, Don Meredith, Vicki Lawrence, George Hamilton, Stella Stevens, and Fred Williamson. Many of these stars extracting top dollar for their appearances. The plot revolved around a mysterious assassin making repeated attempts on the life of a passenger, played by Steve Lawrence. The dramatic failure of the show is often incorrectly blamed on Fred Silverman. But really, the show was already greenlit by previous executive Paul Klein and was in early production when he came on board. He did push the premiere to mid-season, which is why the failure of the show is usually laid at his feet. Let's hear Fred himself discuss Supertrain in this 2001 interview. This was actually Paul Klein's
3: idea. The idea to do Super Train is one of the few times I agreed with him. You know, about anything. And I said, that's a terrific idea. Let's do it. And we went to uh, Dan Curtis, who went on after Supertrain to do Winds of War and War and Remembrance. So, I mean, he was a pretty good producer, but he kind of lost his way on this one and just felt that uh, the way to do a series like this is uh, to just throw money at it. So we had a set that cost about $10 million to build. You could have built a railroad station for what they did at MGM. It just was a great idea that was terribly executed. I mean, that, that's about all I can say. Fact is, is that the show opened with a 38 share. I mean, it was it had a very strong opening, and it opened. It was there was a blizzard that year, so everybody in the world saw it. I mean, it was a big, big rating. And then the shows were just lousy shows, and it plummeted. If I had to do all over again, I think it's a great idea to do a, a drama. I mean, it was what we attempted to do was. Hitchcock every week on a train, but to do really good suspense stories with some humor.
0: And it was a a good idea. We just didn't have the right people to execute it. The Three Mile Island accident of March 28, 1979 probably didn't help public perception of a show about an atomic-powered train. Also, unlike The Love Boat, which had a very predictable, familiar, formulaic format, it was unclear what this show was supposed to be. A serious thriller? A light-hearted thriller? The premiere movie had an uncomfortable storyline involving domestic abuse, and it did not totally match the rest of the plot. After five episodes, the show was pulled from the schedule for a few weeks, and it was retooled. They cut several cast members and tried to make it even more similar to The Love Boat, with the final episode that aired even adding a laugh track just like The Love Boat. There were actually three versions of the opening theme song, each more disco than the last. The totally 1970s guest star lineup included Tony Danza Jamie Farr Zsa Zsa Gabor Bernie Capel Lyle Wagner Nicholas Hammond Chip Fields Henry Jones Mako Isabel Sanford Abe Vagoda, Larry Linville, Clevon Little, Loretta Switt, Vic Tayback, Joyce DeWitt, Roddy McDowell, Victor Buono, Keith Coogan, Noah Hathaway, Rue McClanahan, Billy Barty, and Dick Van Dyke. In all, eight additional episodes aired after the pilot film. The series was run one more time in the summer of 1979, but was never syndicated or aired again in the U.S. The Super Train pilot movie was released on VHS in 1985 under the title Express to Terror, but no other official releases were ever made. However, every episode is findable on YouTube. In 2002, TV Guide ranked Supertrain number 28 in its 50 worst TV shows of all time list. Fred Silverman did okay. After a rocky start, he ended up being responsible for hits that helped raise the status of NBC, like Hill Street Blues, Different Strokes, and The Facts of Life. He went on to start his own production company and produce such programs as the Perry Mason television movies. Matlock, In the Heat of the Night, and Diagnosis Murder. Next time on Forgotten TV... Lost in the Devil's Triangle, trapped
1: in a dimension with beings from the future and from other worlds, a party of adventurers journeys through zones of time, back to their own time.
0: It's the Fantastic Journey, next time on Forgotten TV... Forgotten TV is not affiliated with NBC, Universal Television, Dan Curtis Productions, or Studios USA Television. Cliffhangers and Supertrain are the property and trademarks of NBC and Universal Television, and no infringement is intended. Audio clips are included for the purposes of review, commentary, and criticism only, and are not intended to infringe. And I'd like to thank the following YouTube channels for making this episode possible. Rob at C 2009, Sylvie Nickerson, Martin Hughes, Trust Fund Challenge, Operator 35, and a special thanks to the Archive of American Television, TVObscurities.com, as well as the unofficial SuperTrain website. All of these will be linked up for you in the show notes. Forgotten TV is now a member of the Frequent Wire podcast network. To find other great podcasts, click the link to Frequent Wire in the show notes. If you like Forgotten TV, you'll probably enjoy Walnut Grovecast, where we discuss episodes of Little House on the Prairie. Subscribe to Forgotten TV on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. To interact with me on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or to easily support the show by doing your regular shopping on Amazon, that's all linked up for you at Forgotten.tv. I'm Chris Cooling, and this has been Forgotten TV.